Welcome to the Season 2 finale of Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Here we are. We made it. The Season 2 finale. The show I've been promising for weeks now. But before we unleash this beast, let me take a quick moment to set up Season 3 for an awesome start. While I'm on hiatus the next two weeks, I ask that you consider submitting your own creepy tale if you have one. Or, as always, you can tell a story secondhand if you have enough of the details. If you do not have a story or know of one, then I ask that you share the show with as many friends as possible. Each person that we reach increases our chances at finding terrifying stories that will keep the show going. And as I always say, without the stories, there is no show. Finally, the last thing you can do to help out is to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcast. It's really easy and quick to do, and each review, as long as it's positive, goes a long way to spread the show's message. As an added bonus, if I get an influx of reviews within a certain window, iTunes takes notice and would then be more inclined to highlight Monsters Among Us on various lists. And I don't even have to tell you how beneficial that would be. Alright. You didn't tune in to hear me ramble about reviews and submissions. You want to hear the stories. So let's get started. Many towns seem to harbor their own dark secrets. Chances are, yours is no different. Some of these stories are humorous, while others heartbreaking. But it's the terrifying ones that we're after. Stories that rise from the ashes of caution, fear, and superstition. You see, many of these darker stories stem from some sort of real event. While many of the details are most likely exaggerated, the roots are still there gripping the town like a fist. Often, these tales were created for one sole purpose, to terrify. After all, what a better way to keep kids away from that dangerous bridge or darkened alley by scaring the life out of them. So without further hesitation, let's wander down that darkened road in search of these cautionary tales. But be warned, there may be monsters among us. Our first story comes to us from the state of Georgia. This is Chris's hometown legend. Hi, this is Chris, and I'm calling to relate what I know about my hometown legend. Uh, I grew up in a small town in Georgia, just west of Atlanta, and from a very early age I had heard stories about the pig man. So the details vary slightly from one source to the next on this, but the basis of the story was this. There was a local man who had been severely wounded in Vietnam. He'd been badly burned in an explosion which had resulted in all the hair on his head being singed off, and his face had been mangled as well. The better part of his nose had been shorn off in the blast, leaving uh, his two nasal passages exposed. So the combined effects of these injuries had made him resemble a pig. So the guy gets back from Vietnam, and he finds himself unable to cope with all the staring locals, so he heads out into the woods. And this the part of Georgia where I'm from is, is pretty heavily wooded. So the legend states that he 
goes out into the woods and makes his home in an old school bus that had been abandoned at the end of an old logging road. Uh, it, it was said that the pig man was uh, solitary and he didn't venture out of his school bus very often, but he would chase anyone who chanced too close. And uh, the people he typically ended up chasing, I imagine, were kids who threw rocks at his bus trying to catch a glimpse of him. So this was a really popular tale in my hometown. And the first time I heard it, I heard it from my mother. Um, and when I started school, I heard a lot more elaborations on the on the pigman legend. And I heard that he lived off the land eating squirrels and rabbits. And I heard that he was crazy and dangerous. I heard that he was armed and was less inclined to give chase than he was to open fire. And I'd also heard about uh, kids um, who had supposedly found the location of the school bus. And I'd heard about kids who claim their older siblings had actually been chased by the pig man. Um, these always seem to be kids from the other high school in town. So the story of the pig man stuck with me, and thanks to the internet, I've since discovered that there were pig man legends in other parts of the country as well, like in Vermont and upstate New York. Uh, there's even a pig man bridge that I'd never heard of in another part of Georgia, and there's a pig man road in Alabama. What's notable about this to me is that these pigmen, these other pigmen legends all seem to have a supernatural origin, something along the lines of a, there's a cruel farmer, pig farmer who's cursed for mistreating his animals to take on their features and wander the woods. And I've never tried to do any real hardcore research into my pigman legend. I mean, it would it's probably possible to figure out if, there, if anyone had come home from Vietnam with severe disfiguring injuries. Uh, personally, I like to believe that he's out there, and if you chance across his school bus, he'll throw open the folding door and chase you out of his woods. Uh, the legend, I find, is usually a lot more fun than the reality. Anyway, thanks for listening. I love the podcast, and I hope you keep bringing us these spooky tales for a long time to come. Thank you, Chris. Chris does not mention the name of his town, and any attempts I made to root it out resulted in failure. It seems there are simply too many pigman tales to narrow it down. But my search did uncover something I found rather interesting. There is another pigman legend. This one is in Angola, New York. The following Travel Channel clip explains more. of the, the pig man of Angola, New York, as I know it growing up as a kid. It happened maybe 67 years ago. There was a butcher down on, on Holland Road in between these two old train trestles. And normally when he was really busy, he'd take pig's head, put him up on the stakes by his property line, the driveway entrance. That would deter people from going back to his property when he was busy. One afternoon, three teenage kids from, from Angola, locals, uh, traveled down there and wandered up onto his property. <coughs> that next day, their heads were found on stakes at the entrance of his uh, property. And, uh, since then, there's been sightings and rumors of the pig man still roaming in the area out in the woods. go down there late at night and when there has it that if you stop under the tunnel and honk your horn three times you can get the pig man to come out and uh, there have been reports of kids that teenagers from high school go down there and they get chased away from the property that really started the legend and uh, of Pigman road and his uh his beginning of a serial killer This video mentions honking a car horn three times to summon the beast. This reminds me of a legend that was told to me about a town near where I grew up called Zanesville, Ohio. According to my source, there was once an old orphanage high on a hill just outside of town, until one day a fire broke out, killing every child inside. Now if you park your car just down the hill from that very site and honk your horn three times, 
you can hear in the distance the crying of those lost children. Well, that tale certainly is scary, and from what I was told, it worked every single time. That is, until the peacock farmer on the other side of that hill finally grew tired of his birds squawking at the tone of the car horn and butchered every last one of them. Suffice it to say, the legend died that night with those peacocks. But back to the pigman story. The one in Angola seems to be the inspiration for the pigman character in the latest season of American Horror Story. As for Chris's pigman, I can't seem to get the rundown bus image out of my head. Seeing that in the woods, dimly lit from the inside, would be enough to scare you to death, let alone a deformed and deranged lunatic living inside. Thank you again, Chris, for your tale. Our next installment takes us to the other side of the country. This is Kelly's story from California. Hi, uh, my name is Kelly, and this is my hometown legend. I grew up in Livermore, California, and there's this scary story about a boy who used to hang out under this overpass and he would always throw rocks at people walking or driving by. Well, one day somebody got so fed up with him that they actually murdered him and left his body under this overpass. So now his body, our spirit, remains there and still throws rocks at people if you stay there too long. So me and my friends went to this spot and this was when I was in high school, so about eight years ago. We went out late at night and drove underneath this overpass, which was along the side of the road on this dirt path that our car could drive under. It was a very isolated location. Barely any cars drove by. There was nobody around. We had our headlights on at first, um, so we would have seen someone if, if they were hiding nearby. There were three of us in the car, all girls, we parked our car, turned off the ignition, and rolled down all the windows. Just as feeling alone was very eerie, but what you're supposed to do to make rock boy appear, so we did it. We felt very vulnerable and knew that it would be hard to get away if something did happen since the car wasn't on. We were sitting there in silence for about 30 seconds, so one of us yelled out, Rock boy, where are you? Well, right after that, we heard sort of a a trickling sound, kind of like it was raining, but it, it wasn't actually raining. But then it picked up really fast and sounded like heavy hail. So it, could, it couldn't have been just one person throwing rocks because it sounded like hundreds of rocks being thrown at the same time. We fumbled with the keys for a second but got, but got out of there as fast as we humanly could. I have other friends who have tried this as well. They told me that in their experience, when they were underneath the overpass waiting for something to happen, instead of the trickling rocks that we heard, they felt a big thud on the back of their car, almost like somebody jumped onto their car. They all looked back but didn't see anyone. The Rock Boy legend is a pretty well-known story in Livermore, at least when I was in high school. And I know other people have had strange encounters when they have tried this. So that's my story. Thanks. Thank you, Kelly. This is a legend I'd actually heard of in the past, but the origin that I heard was that Rockboy was hit in the head by another kid and died. Either way, I've read several accounts that people also heard the rocks hitting their car. I'll be honest here. My first thought went straight to cryptozoology and more specifically, Sasquatch. After all, the creature has been reported to throw rocks on so many occasions, so it only made sense. But after doing a little digging into the area, it seems that it would be fairly difficult for a creature of that size to remain hidden in an urban area such as Livermore, which is just outside of Oakland, California, for those not familiar. I'm not counting that out, but it does seem very far-fetched as a logical explanation. Nevertheless, it is a very cool tale, and I appreciate you sharing it with us. 
Thank you again, Kelly. Up next is an infamous legend, this one from the state of Pennsylvania. Hi, this is Amanda again from Pennsylvania. I'm calling about something that's pretty uh, well-known around here. It's all over PA, actually, but there is a local one near where I live. and It's in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and it's called Crybaby Bridge, and I'm sure you've probably heard something about it before. Um, but it's sort of like a, almost like a woman in white sort of story. It basically kind of goes, um, you know, a woman who was pregnant out of wedlock, had her baby, and couldn't deal with the shame, you know, of it. So she drowned her baby and then killed herself. Um, Another version of that legend is, you know, she found out that she was pregnant out of wedlock and jumped off of the bridge or hung herself from the bridge. Um, There's a lot of different stories about it. Some like that that are just sad you know like a like a suicide sort of deal um and then there's other ones that are more violent um such as you know the the father didn't want the shame so he killed both the mother and the baby on the bridge and um basically what people say is if you go to a crybaby bridge and you walk along it um or drive on it if you can drive on it some of them you can't um but you can hear crying like of a woman and you can hear the crying of a baby um if some of them that you can drive on um people have reported seeing like the handprints of a child on their windows or feeling the car be moved um which that might be scientifically explainable um just by the way that the bridge is but um it's it's very subtle sure but and people always report kind of feeling confused and scared or sad, um, you know, depending on who you ask and which bridge you go to. But the one in Lancaster is the one I know about, and I actually, of course, wanted to test it out. So I went, and I didn't really experience anything. That's not to say that other people don't, but it is an urban legend, and it is pretty popular. So I just wanted to kind of share that with everybody, and I hope you enjoy it, and uh, feel free to research it further. It's pretty interesting, and it's very widespread. Thank you, and have a great day. Thank you, Amanda. I had heard of this legend in the past, and believe it or not, a town near where I went to college had just such a story. And yes, I investigated it, and no, I didn't hear or see anything. In fact, there are at least a hundred of these so-called crybaby bridges across the country. There are 24 in Ohio alone. So I took your advice and did some investigating. I wanted to see where this legend stems from. My search took me to weekendweird.com and an article called Troubled Waterways, Origins of the Crybaby Bridge Legend. The article suggests several down-to-earth explanations such as a bird or fox calling out, pranksters, and even hidden speakers. But the article digs deeper. They wanted to find out if babies were ever actually tossed from bridges. After all, if those terrible acts weren't performed, certainly there'd be no babies to haunt said bridges. Well, to the writers, and my own surprise, there were children tossed from bridges. Several, in fact. They referenced the following. July 19, 1886. Four-year-old Richard Tufts of Long Beach, New Brunswick, carried a neighbor's baby to a bridge over Tufts Brook and tossed him over the edge. When asked why he did it, he said, I don't know. November 1, 1890. Sadie McMullen threw Ellen May Connors and Delia Brown, ages 11 and 6 respectively, 70 feet from the New York Central Trestle Bridge over Murderer's Creek in Akron, New York, before unsuccessfully trying to drown herself. Ella died instantly. Delia survived but was permanently injured. October 9, 1900. 
Harry Stewart snuck out of his home at 1812 Superior Street in Cleveland, Ohio, slit his two-month-old baby's throat, and threw the body into a nearby sewer. The baby was found a week later in Lake Erie near Lakeview's Park Suicide Pier. He was arrested in New York City. January 30, 1914. In one of the most sensational crimes from the history of Spartansburg, South Carolina, Clyde Clement threw his infant daughter Virginia off a bridge into Mill Pond on Lawson's Fork Creek. He threatened to leave his girlfriend, Laura Pendleton, if the baby wasn't gone away with, and would only marry her after the child was gone. February 28, 1914. Mrs. Ralph Dinsmore, 23, of North Attleboro, Massachusetts, jumped from the Metcalf Street Bridge clutching her four-month-old baby and was struck by a train around 12.30 p.m. She left a suicide note stating that no one will understand her reasons. July 16, 1922. An unknown woman clutching a baby jumped from Goat Island Bridge and went over Niagara Falls to her death. May 1, 1937. Myrtle Ward tossed her three-year-old daughter, Louise, off the Colorado Street Bridge in Pasadena, California. The infant's 100-foot fall was broken by a tree. The mother jumped afterward and died instantly. December 13, 1938. Mrs. Gordon McKenzie of Vancouver accidentally dropped her three-month-old baby from Bered Street Bridge while contemplating taking both of their lives by jumping. February 16, 2010. Following a domestic dispute... Samsid Din Admir Rahim threw his three-month-old baby daughter off the Garden State Parkway's Driscoll Bridge near Sayersville, New Jersey. Now, even the article itself admits that these reports are not direct proof that these legends have any merit, but they do suggest that such a thing was at least possible. And to be honest, I had serious doubts that anything like this ever even took place. So, thank you again, Amanda. Unfortunately, this one took a depressing turn. By the way, head over to the show notes for this episode to read the full article and any others associated with these legends. Our next hometown tale is actually a true one. The following story comes to us from Sarah in Massachusetts. You might remember Sarah from the early days of the show. She called in to tell about her encounter with a large hairy beast while performing in a haunted house. Here is Sarah's story. Hi, this is Sarah calling from Massachusetts. So the story that I wanted to tell you is um, a local legend called Half-Hanked Mary, um, which is actually the story of a woman named Mary Webster that lived in a nearby town from where I live of Hadley, Massachusetts. Um, And in 1683, she was accused um, by neighbors of being a witch um, and was put on trial. It was a fairly famous trial down here. And um, oddly enough, she was actually acquitted of being a witch, which wasn't really how that thing tended to go back then. Um, But they couldn't find enough evidence. Um, She was uh, known around town for um, being uh, sort of an outspoken, not a terribly nice neighbor. She fought with her neighbors. Um, She was very poor. Um, She also drank, and she tended to beg for money, so she wasn't very popular. Um, and many, many people claimed that she had uh, bewitched their livestock and caused all kinds of mischief with their neighbors, and pretty much anything that went wrong was more or less blamed on Mary. Um, After she was acquitted, um, there was a local gentleman also in town whose name was Philip Smith, who was a man of very high standing. He had a lot of money. He was sort of a church uh, uh, father, sort of, you know, head of part of the church. Um, So he was very well liked, and not very long after um, she was acquitted, he fell ill um, with this strange illness, and it was known that they had sort of had um, a rivalry, um, some conflict between the two of them, and most people in town um, decided that she had bewitched him, and that was the cause of his illness. Um, Their symptoms were very weird. Um, Apparently, um, it was recorded um, by Cotton Mather, um, who wrote a book called The Magnalia Christi Americana and talked about witchcraft in America, and he dedicated a whole part of the book to this particular case. 
um, and he was talking about how Philip um, had gotten ill with this strange um, fever, and he said that he felt like something was pick, pricking him with pins all over his body, and that his body swelled up and would bleed from the nose and bleed from other places in his body, that medicine that was in his room vanished, and that um, people that were attending Philip in his illness would hear knockings and other strange scratching noises in the wall. And it was decided that this was a case of witchcraft and that Mary was the case of it. Um, so because she had been acquitted of witchcraft, um, the local uh, law couldn't really do anything to her. She'd already been acquitted. Um, so a small group of people decided to go out and take care of it themselves. Um, so in January of um, 1684, as Philip was um, lying on his sickbed, they went to her house, um, dragged her out into the snow, beat her and then hung her from a nearby tree until she died and then buried her in a shallow grave and left her. Um, the strange part of the story is that she actually didn't die. They thought that they had killed her, but she actually survived. She dug herself out of her own grave and basically dragged herself back into her house. Um, and a few days after this had happened, Philip died quite horribly in bed um, and was buried and it became known that she had survived this beating and this hanging and that her reputation as a witch um, preceded her from that point and people basically left her alone. Um, according to records, um, Mary actually died very comfortably in bed about 11 years later in 1696. Um, the interesting thing about this story is that there is a rumor around the Hadley area that some people say um, in a particular area off of Route 9 around a road called Nashua Road, um, some people have reported being approached by an elderly woman who is in sort of a raggedy dress and shawl who will sometimes ask them for food or money. And the uh, rumor is, is that if you give her something, she will disappear and that you will be uh, given some good luck and that if you refuse her, she will disappear appear and something terrible will happen to you, uh, much in the same way that something terrible happened to Philip. Um, I can't vouch for the ghost part of the story, but I can vouch for the historical backing of the rest of it, and it's one of my favorite sort of local witchcraft stories just because it's so, so strange. Um, so I hope you can use that for the show. Um, I'm enjoying it very much, and uh, thank you for letting me tell another one. Have a good day. Thank you, Sarah. I absolutely love this story. The witch trials were a terrible and extremely dark chapter of this continent's history, and so it's great to hear that at least one of them made it out alive. I'll tell you this, if I ever see her along the road, I'm buying her a beer. She earned it. The witch trials have always been something that's fascinated me, so much so that I've been toying with the idea of trekking across the country to visit the landmarks myself. Very tragic, yet very interesting. Thank you again, Sarah, for sharing. We are moving right along here. Our next tale is a written submission from West Virginia. Hi there. I wanted to write my submission as I'm a far better writer than storyteller. I spent a few years of my childhood in a small town called Del Barton, located in Mango County, West Virginia. My mother and I stayed with my grandparents in their home, and I remember that there was an old coal mine entrance situated on the hill overlooking our house. The adults, of course, would always warn us of the dangers that the old mine possessed, and should we be fool enough to ever enter it. If you know anything about kids, you know that we ignored the warnings of our elders and ventured into the cave never being brave enough to make it more than five or six feet before imaginations created roars and growls to carry our feet away as fast as we could manage. One evening, my grandfather called my siblings and I outside to join him around a fire that he'd often built after long days. Being 75% Cherokee, his storytelling skills were on point, and he told us the following story. I verified this tale years later through several other family members and friends, and it was, in fact, a well-known legend in the area. Long ago, there were two braves, who were the strongest of their tribe. These two men shared in the glory of many victories, and their time on the battlefield had brought them closer than brothers. As time went on, the men fell in love with the same young woman in the tribe. 
She was the most beautiful woman either had set eyes upon. When the time came and she was old enough to be married, her father, who knew of the interest of both men, issued a challenge. The man who claimed the most lives in an upcoming battle would be granted the young lady's hand. The two men both agreed to the terms and made a pact with the gods to accept the outcome, no matter which way it went. The battle came and both men fought and defeated many adversaries in their quest for the woman they loved. Standing alone together by a small pond, washing the stains of battle from their faces, they began to compare numbers, and one of the braves became angry because he knew he had been bested by his brother. He took his spear and plunged it into his brother's back, feeling great sorrow as he watched the light fade from the man's eyes. There was a sudden great crash of thunder and a bolt of lightning that struck the traitor, for he had broken his pact with the gods. Rather than kill the man for his sin... The gods condemned him to an eternity trapped inside a cave with the specter of his brother in arms, torturing him until the end of time. To prevent anyone from ever disturbing the warrior's eternal tomb, the gods summoned a creature known as the Wampus Cat, a vicious creature that was part human and part cougar, and kill anyone who dared disturb the sacred place. As I grew older and the internet became a thing, I would often search for proof that more people than just my town knew of the story. All I could ever find was that the Wampus Cat was a pretty well-known legend, but I never found the rest of the story anywhere. I don't know if my grandfather was just embellishing to get our attention or to keep us out of the cave, but it did make me wonder whether or not the growls and roars we heard in that cave were from our overactive imaginations or the guardian of an ancient warrior's personal hell. Thank you for the fantastic show you put on. All the best wishes to you and yours. Thank you for the submission. My girlfriend's extended family hail from Kentucky, and they often speak for the Wampus Cat. In fact, she was always warned by her father and grandfather not to wander out of the yard or else the Wampus Cat would get her. I'd always understood it to be some sort of large, bobcat-like creature. I'd never heard of the half-man, half-cougar legend, nor have I heard of the two braves. But I will admit, it's a great origin story. Thank you again for sharing with us. Best wishes to you and yours as well. Our next submission comes from a far-off land that I'm sure everyone listening has heard of. A land that, in a way, birthed one of the most well-known and terrifying legends, Transylvania. This is Chris's submission. Hello, Derek and fellow listeners. Uh, I am an American expat. My name is Chris, and I am originally from the northeast of the United States. Uh, but I've been living for nearly three years across the eastern and western Balkans. Um, the eastern and western Balkans are a beautiful region, quite a mysterious region of Eastern Europe. I am a teacher here. I am also very fascinated by stories of the supernatural, particularly older locations. And where I live is quite an historic and older area. Um, like I used to live, go to university in a city called Cluj. Cluj is the second city of Romania and happens to be the largest uh, regional hub in all of Transylvania. So Transylvania means land beyond the woods. It is not too far from the Hungarian border. You will not find stories of the supernatural per se in uh, Cluj. But right outside the city, there is a haunted forest. It is supposedly, depending on who you ask, either the most haunted uh, forest in all of Europe, or at least potentially the whole entire world. It's called the Hoya Baichu. Um, the Hoya Baichu is said to have supernatural uh, events like aliens, UFOs, shadow people, werewolves, vampires, people who disappear and then come back many years later or just don't come back at all. Generally you'll find when talking with people they either shrug it off or they'll tell you don't go there. Well, I did go. And I went by myself uh, in November 2014. I remember getting there, dropped off by the local, local taxi, and him telling me, uh, just call me when you're done, I'll pick you up, but I will not come any closer to where I dropped you off. So I walked to the forest, and the forest, I have to say, on the outside, you'll hear the birds, 
and you'll hear you'll see sheep and you'll see you know horses and farmland it's atop of hill so you can see the rest of the city it's a beautiful beautiful view walk into the this not very large forest but you know it's a decent forest you walk in and it is just strangely quiet there are no birds chirping there are no animals and I didn't see any UFOs or ghosts or anything but the fact of how quiet it was, it felt like I was walking through a snow-packed woods and how deafening that is. That's what the first thing that came to my mind. How, why is it so quiet? You know, I, I left soon after, uh, after I got pretty deep in, because I feel like, you know, I could see where, you know, I don't know disappearances, but, you know, because of supernatural reason, but I, I can tell you if you go far enough in, you don't know your way out, I can sure see how somebody could, you know, get lost. It could probably play tricks on you. Um, and if there is something supernatural about it, well, I, I could see that too. You can almost just, you know, you can almost picture it. In the rest of the country, you will find uh, stories about vampires. Generally, vampires are from most traditional lore that we know of, come from actually Serbia and Bulgaria. Um, and Serbia and Bulgaria like to battle each other over who really has uh, the true story of vampires and its true origins. And of course, Romania has because of Dracula. There was a real, man, a real man named Dracula. He was a prince of the Kingdom of Wallachia um, in the 1400s, which is the south of the country. And uh, he is known as also Vlad Shepish, or Vlad the Impaler. Uh, Vlad Dracula was not a vampire. He did not drink blood, but he was a tyrant. Um, but he's seen as a hero in Romania for many reasons. That is for another time. What I can tell you is that in Romania you will find stories about vampires. And in Romania they're called Strigoi. And in the Roma, i.e. Gypsy communities, they're called Moro. Strigoi and Moro are not attractive, they don't sparkle, they, they're not helpful. Depending on the story and traditional folklore you'll get, either they are the people who had passed away with regrets who were born during the time of Christmas and Epiphany, i.e. Orthodox Christmas, um, people who had become werewolves and then died and became back. Um, either these are beings, shells without a soul or still have a soul, uh, maybe that makes it even scarier, who will go around and either drink your blood, you know, or drink your essence, which is your soul. And they particularly impact as the winter gets around in November, um, up until about November 30th with St. Andrew's Night. And uh, you'll find a lot of Orthodox tradition about that, um, and mysticism about uh, street going and Mordo. So those are my stories from the Balkans. I can tell you the Balkans is a beautiful region, and I highly recommend anyone to come visit it. So thank you for your time, and I appreciate the audience listening. Uh, keep up the hard work, Derek. Again, thank you and good night. Thank you, Chris, for reaching out from so far away. I'm really happy that you took the time to call in. Your submission is the only one I received from outside the stage, which is a shame because there are some really incredible legends out there. Now, due to time constraint, I had to cut Chris's submission down. He actually submitted a second story, but I'm going to hold on to that one for another episode. Thank you again, Chris, for taking the time to share stories of your new home with us. This is shaping up to be the longest episode of Monsters Among Us yet, and we still have several stories to go. So I hope you're all hanging in there. Our next story comes to us from someone we will refer to as Florida Man. This should be good. Hi, Derek been a fan of the show for a while now, but this is my first time ever calling in. Hopefully I'll be in time for the um, Hometown Legends episode you're planning to do for the Season 2 finale. 
I prefer not to use my real name or give any information about myself due to the profession I'm in, so we're just going to call me Florida Man, if that's all right. Anyway, the legend I want to tell you is about my hometown of Sarasota, Florida, and about the name of the place, supposedly. Now, most place names in Florida come from one of the local Native American languages, something like Seminole, Creek, or earlier languages from before the Seminoles migrated in, but Sarasota is fairly unique in that no one can really trace the origin of the place name. There is a legend that has to do with it, though. Supposedly, sometime long before the Europeans arrived in that part of the world, there was a Native American princess by the name of Sarasota. Now, a hurricane had supposedly been about to hit this part of the state, which is a very rare occurrence. Sarasota being on the Gulf Coast, a hurricane has to essentially come in from the east, move as if it was going to hit Mexico or Texas, and then make a perfect 180-degree turn in order for a hurricane to hit that part of the coast at all, there in the Gulf Coast of Florida. Supposedly, though, a storm was coming, and the local native people, being very in touch with the weather and spirits and such like that, were able to discern that the only way to stop it was to take a Native American princess, the daughter of the chief, supposedly, and row her out into the middle of Sarasota Bay. As the storm was approaching, supposedly the girl was sacrificed by drowning into the water in order to avoid a storm coming and destroying the rest of the tribe. The hurricane passed, and the town has been known by that forever since. Now, I'm not sure if there's any truth to this. It could very well have come from Spanish. There's another legend claiming that Sarasota is simply the name of some conquistador's daughter, such as Sarah de Soda. But it is an interesting and quite spooky legend when you think about it. Hope this helps the show. Just wanted to give my two cents. Thank you so much for everything you do. It's very entertaining and a very spooky way to de-stress at the end of the some nights. Take care. Thank you, Florida man. I love the origin stories from some of these Native American settlements. In fact, your story reminds me of something I read about a northwest Ohio town called Maumee. It's spelled M-A-U-M-E-E. Now, Maumee is a picturesque little town just outside of Toledo. The Maumee River runs right through it. Well, this story involves that very river. You see, when white settlers made their way west, some stopped on the banks of that very river and set up a small settlement. As expected, that didn't sit well with the Native Americans that already called this land home. So one night, they raided the settlement, killing everyone. Well, almost everyone. It's said that throughout the night, one young girl, scalped, battered, beaten, and bloody, roamed the banks of that river crying out for her mother. Mommy. Mommy. The raiders watched on from that darkened forest, remembering what she cried out. And from that very day, they referred to that river as the Mommy River. Now, as it turns out, that story is completely untrue. But damn, is it a great story. Thank you again, Florida man. And thanks for the kind words. From Pigman to Goatman, the next submission stems from the state of Texas. Our Goatman legend is that he would abduct or harass children or teens at night. However, he would only do this to those who were bad. One would know if he is near if he or she smells sulfur in the air. In Belton, Texas, we have a large lake, and the legend is that if there is a fire across the lake, it's a sign that the Goatman is near. And if you look at the fire for too long, the Goatman will notice and swim across the lake for you. Another legend comes from the military base, Fort Hood. It's said that the Goatman chases cars on rural roads, and those who chose to chase him find him running into restricted areas. In Temple, Texas, which is a neighboring town, they say that children that go down to the railroad tracks might find the Goatman meeting them. The Bell County Boy Scouts also have a legend. At their campsite, it is said that there is a cave where the Goatman lives. These stories come from Bell County, 
which consists of the towns of Temple, Belton, Moody, Troy, Austin, and Fort Hood. I hope that you can use this segment in the show. By the way, love the show. Keep it up. Thank you for sending that information in. You know, Goatman and Pigman aren't the only animal hybrids said to haunt the backwoods of this country. A few honorable mentions include the Dogman of Wisconsin and Michigan, the Bunnyman of Virginia, the Lizardman of Skateboard Swamp, South Carolina, the Loveland Frogman of Loveland, Ohio, the Mothman of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and even the Kushtaka, or Otterman, of Alaska. It kind of seems like these things are everywhere. Thanks again for the info. Our next submission takes us to Long Island, New York. My name is Deborah Stelling, and I live in Suffolk County, Long Island, New York. We have a legend about Lake Ronkonkoma. It's an old legend about an Indian princess who lost her love um, in the water. And every year, when the season opens, it, legend says a young man dies in the lake. If you check the records, you'll see every summer since records go back, a young man does die in the lake every summer. He drowns. Thank you, Deborah, for your call. I did a little more digging for info on this legend. The following was lazily pulled from Wikipedia. The most widely acknowledged interpretation of the legend is that a Native American woman fell in love with a European settler. Forbidden to pursue such a love, the woman was forced into an arranged marriage, but their love persisted. One evening, she tried to swim across the lake to her lover, but suffered fatigue and drowned. She returns every year to claim a man to be with her at the bottom of the lake. Other interpretations say that she rode to the middle of the lake in a canoe to await the coming of her lover. But when he did not come for her, she committed suicide by drowning herself. Another similar variation of the legend states that she rode to the middle of the lake to await him, and as he swam out to her, he fatigued and drowned. Overwhelmed with grief, she drowned herself to join him. For all intents and purposes, the Lady of the Lake is not malicious. Her claiming of men is out of love and need, for she does not understand that she is also condemning these individuals to death. Her loneliness overwhelms her, and she reaches out to these men in desperation. Some men, likely in the mood to cause a stir, claim that when they swim beyond the boundaries of the designated swim area, they feel cold fingers touch and try to grasp at their ankles. There is a mural dedicated to the Lady of the Lake on the side of the strip mall on Roosevelt Avenue, painted and updated regularly by a local artist named Michael Murphy. So, bottom line, if you're a young, vital male, I suggest waiting until she claims her first victim before you venture out into those waters. And finally, our final call of the evening. This one from my home state in the city of Cleveland. One of my favorite things to do as a, as a teenager was to visit all the local supposedly haunted little neighborhoods or um, monuments, for a lack of a better word, throughout Cleveland. I've been to Helltown, Terra Vista, Gore Orphanage, there was Franklin's Castle. But out of, out of all of the little places, weird places we'd go, I, two really stood out. One was Helltown which was located in Boston Township, uh, not far from the two ski resorts in Cleveland. Yes, Cleveland has ski resorts, um, Brandywine and Boston Mills. But uh, Helltown is supposedly a town that had a railroad track that had gone through, and then uh, so it started getting built up, and then the railroad track was rerouted. So most of the town was abandoned. If if not condemned, there is a still small group of people that live there, and it has all of your, um, you know, typical things like a crybaby bridge. You know, you have to cross the bridge to get into the town, and then there's the haunted cemetery, there's the haunted church, there is a really 
outdated looking gas station that's one of the first things you see when you enter their neighborhood so it, it encompasses everything probably all parts of different myths and legends you know that every local town has and it's kind of all in one it also has this thing called the end of the world where as you drive up as you drive down the road you you go up such a steep incline that it looks like the road beneath you no longer exists thus you're driving off the end of the world the other one that i went to a lot was gore orphanage which was um more east i'm sorry more west of cleveland and that one is that's really it's really hard to find in fact you kind of have to go during the day to get your bearing straight so you know exactly where the foundation of the orphanage was but uh, legend has it that it was an orphanage um, and then it had burnt down and all the kids inside um, were obviously burned alive so they haunt the grounds of which the orphanage where the orphanage used to stand so that was a that was a fun one too um, and I even remember a little incident where me and my friend had pulled up gosh we were in this Astro this Ford Astro van and um, we had parked and, and this is the first time we'd been there and it was pitch black so we didn't we didn't really know where we were we were actually too scared to get out and as we were um, waiting for friends to join us um, who ultimately got lost and they never showed up but when we were sitting in the van we had no idea we were actually parked right in front of where the orphanage used to stand and as we were sitting in the car we noticed this beam of light in the woods uh, within like every minute slowly get closer it, it was no other way to describe it as if it was just this like orb of light really I mean we we had no idea what it was and um, as it got closer to the van if it was a flashlight it was kind of foggy you'd see the you'd actually see the source of the light but, but you couldn't see the source so uh, it freaked us out and we drove off um, that's really the only paranormal thing that I've experienced out of both Gore Orphanage and Helltown. So Cleveland Cleveland has its fair share and uh, that's my story. Thank you, caller. I actually spent a little time in Cleveland just this past summer, and one of my stops was exploring Helltown. Now, given the fact that it was midday and it was much less ominous than many, including our previous caller claim, but I could see how the creep factor could go up after dark. For a little backstory, the legend of Helltown began with a town called Boston Village. In the 1970s, the National Park Service purchased the land the town sat on to create what's now known as the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Well, once the government bought up the town, rumors began to fly of government cover-ups involving anything from chemical spills to mutant humanoids murdering citizens under the cover of night. Now, as for Gore Orphanage, the Gore Orphanage is quite possibly Ohio's largest hometown tale. You've heard enough of my voice this evening, so I'll let YouTube user What Shall We Do Next tell the tale. Gore Orphanage the legend of Gore Orphanage begins with a married couple named Johan and Katharina Sprunger who lived in Indiana. After their young son and daughter died under mysterious circumstances, Mr. and Mrs. Sprunger decided to start an orphanage. They called their orphanage the Light of Hope Orphanage. Unfortunately, it burned down in the year 1899 and three orphan girls were burned alive in the blaze. Putting this tragedy behind them, the Sprungers moved to Vermilion, Ohio, where they started a new orphanage in 1903. This was called Gore Orphanage, and eventually they had over 100 boys and girls living there. But all was not well with the children of Gore Orphanage. Rumors of darkness and despair soon plagued the old place. The children told horrific stories of abuse, neglect, and slave labor. Mrs. Sprunger cooked cow's heads and lungs and forced the children to eat the foul meat or starve. Mr. Sprunger beat the poor kids with a leather strap until their bodies were covered in bloody welts and bruises. He would also rent out the children to local farmers as slave labor. The boys and girls were only allowed to wash themselves once every two weeks 
and they all had to use the same dirty bath water. The children's rooms were infested with rats which crawled into their beds and bit them while they lay asleep. Soon, the terrified children began trying to escape from Gore Orphanage. Some of them managed to run away from the home. Wading through the Vermilion River and finding refuge with some generous people in Vermilion. One cold night in December 1923, the orphanage caught fire. Nobody knows how the blaze started. Some people say that one of the orphans accidentally knocked over an oil lamp. Others say that Mr. Sprunger started the fire because he hated the children and wanted to collect insurance money. That night, Gore Orphanage burned to the ground with all the children trapped inside. The fire swept through the old building, springing from one room to another. The children desperately tried to escape the inferno, but the stairs was blocked by the flames. The dreadful cries and screams of the children trapped inside the blazing building could be heard by horrified onlookers. The deadly fire continued to burn until the screams finally fell silent and the orphanage was reduced to a charred smoking shell. The blaze had claimed the lives of over 100 poor orphan children. Ever since that night, people have seen strange apparitions and ghostly figures lurking in the field where Gore Orphanage once stood. They say that if you go there late at night, you can still hear the sounds of children screaming and pleading for help. The air is still filled with the smell of burning flesh and roasted children. Despite the fact that the site is now a vacant field, many people have heard the sound of doors opening and shutting and footsteps walking across wooden floors. There's also an old tire swing hanging from a tree near the site where they say you can see a ghostly young boy swinging silently back and forth. Full disclosure here, I've done some research over the years and I was hard pressed to find any validation to support the story, so take any of what you heard with a grain of salt. So thank you again caller for your submissions and thank you to all of those that submitted stories for tonight's season finale special. I will leave you with my own hometown's legend. Unfortunately, my town's legend is not spooky, but I do find it very interesting. So the B&O Railroad of Monopoly fame ran right through my little town I grew up in. And legend has it that while the railroad was being constructed, an entire locomotive ran off the unfinished track and into a small ravine. According to that same legend, the train was so heavy that the workers could not raise it, so they simply covered it with dirt and continued the track right over top of her. It's been said that to this day there is still a bump where that engine still sits beneath the tracks. And that's going to do it for this episode and this season of Monsters Among Us. But don't fret, I will return with a brand new episode on March 2nd. So please, don't forget about me. Before I go, I'd like to remind everyone that if they've enjoyed this season and would like to give back, please hit up the website at monstersamonguspodcast.com and click the donate button. I'm toying with the idea of doing a little advertising for the show to bring in new listeners, and I have my eye on a new mic arm for the studio. So any help you can throw my way would be greatly appreciated. While I'm gone, I suggest checking out the following podcast. I listen to each of these religiously, and frankly, if you like my show, you'll love these. Into the Fray Radio. Expanded Perspectives and my personal favorite, Blurry Photos. Each are unique in their own way, but all are chock-full of the spooky and paranormal. So if you need something to hold you over, please check out these shows. Finally, I'd like to take a quick moment to thank everyone that was involved in helping make this season great. To each of you that took the time to share your experiences, thank you. I hope I was able to raise questions that better help you to solve your mysteries. To all those that bought t-shirts and donated, thank you so much. You have no idea how happy it makes me to get that email. It really means the world to me. 
to Warren Pawn Abbott, Don Smith, and Mary Lynn Winkle for lending their voices to the show, and to the beautiful Sarah Carter for all her help with social media. And lastly, and probably most importantly, thank you for listening. If you didn't tune in each and every week, there would be no reason to put this show on. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Music from tonight's show is provided by Mayu and Nature World 1986. Thank you all for listening, and until next season. <laughs>